0: From the WUFT Newsroom in Gainesville, Florida, I'm Ethan Majok. Welcome back to The Point. This week, we looked at a pair of Gainesville neighborhoods facing different issues that are influencing what it's like to live there. Also, tomorrow is Veterans Day. We'll hear the experiences of two Alachua County veterans as part of our Florida Voices series. First, Eliza Gonzalez has been looking for big stories in the 32608 zip code this fall. One of them turned out to be a residential neighborhood that's barely hanging on as development along Archer Road spreads farther and farther.
1: The area is a subdivision called Robinswood. It's right off of Archer Road and 37th Boulevard. Um, It's basically this little cul-de-sac that is behind the shopping center with uh, Chipotle and Bento. Since 1958, uh, there was a restrictive covenant tied to some of the houses in that area. A restrictive covenant is basically a document that says that those houses are strictly residential and that you really can't do anything commercial in that area. And so back then um, in the in the 50s and in even throughout the 1900s, it was pretty much just woods back there. Um, a lot of empty land, uh, not a lot of commercial real estate, and then everything that's been going on with Butler Plaza and Celebration Point. Obviously, the area has become very commercial. And so in around 2002, the area was annexed into the city. Um, even though the residents of Robinswood had voted down about three times, it eventually was passed in 2002. And so what happened was that when they were annexed into the city, the zoning changed. They gave it uh, a land designation use of uh, mixed use, MU1. And that's when all the commercial real estate started happening. And that's why we have Bento and Chipotle there and other restaurants.
0: And possibly more soon. But before we get there, uh, who is James Gardner and how did you find him?
1: So James Gardner is like the star of the story. And so he found me, actually. I didn't find him. I was actually working on... Uh, my first enterprise story in my assigned zip code of 32608. And I had emailed Commissioner David Ariola just to kind of learn about that area and see what was going on, if there were any concerns that the citizens had reached out um, or anything that was newsworthy. And he told me, in fact, about the fire service assistance agreement, and that's what ended up being my first enterprise story. But he never really mentioned Robinswood and um because the emails are public records james gardner found me he saw the email that i had an interest in the area that he was living in and so he emailed me asking if commissioner Ariola had ever mentioned robinswood and i said no and so he's like well i'd love to sit down with you and tell you all about it and so i went over to his house and we had a chat and he told me all about the history of Robbinswood and what the problems have been in recent years. Go look at a map of this
2: area, but I mean, that's inevitable. What
0: is the biggest difficulty that he seems to be facing right now?
1: The fact that there potentially is going to be a shopping center and a hotel going up literally at his doorstep. He's going to be consumed by all these new businesses and parking lots. And, you know, if you go to his house, it's literally surrounded by so many trees and Super old trees, tall trees, and it's the woods. You go out and you hear the birds and owls. You can see and wading
3: birds over there right now. Ducks go in there. There was a little family of ducks out there yesterday. Mm-hmm. There's every morning I sit out here and listen to at least five or six owls that live over there. We have beautiful red hawks that live in here. I have uh, raccoons, possums that go in and out of my yard all the time.
1: And all of that's going to be taken away because of all these developments that are going up or potentially going up, we just don't know when.
0: And there's about 35 property parcels from what we could see in his neighborhood about how many actual neighbors, people, does he have left around him, according to, to his observation?
1: So only three are actual homeowners who are actually occupy their homes. The rest are either owned by developers or ho- like owners who rent out their properties.
0: What are some of the records that you had to go through to examine all these different things? You mentioned the emails that were spotted, but you Mm -hmm. went way beyond just emailing a commissioner to get everything you needed.
1: Yeah, well, for sure, voting records had a huge part of the story. Um, So the first voting records I had to see, I had to find about the annexation. I had to know what was going on. um, How did it finally pass? Because my sources had told me that they had turned it down at least three times so I wanted to see how it finally got through and what was the ratio um, there. I also found voting records for the restrictive covenant itself even though that was a more private vote um, among residents Gardner provided me with uh, letters from the lawyers and the ballots attached to the letters which then showed me how many um, owners rescinded their their restrictive covenant I also looked through the property appraiser's office to see what these homes were valued at because that's one of the other huge issues in the story is that these homeowners feel like they're kind of being ripped off and not being offered a price that they deserve or that they think their home is valued at. Um, so definitely look through the property appraiser's office.
0: From the uh, Mitch Glazer, who's a developer, his perspective and some of the other ones around Gainesville, broadly speaking, where does it seem like the city's headed right now in terms of economic development?
1: It's all about progress. It's all about developments, uh, new businesses. It attracts more restaurants, more apartments, attracts more students, attracts more people. Uh, Mickey Glazer even said it himself that he thinks that he's creating an environment with more connectivity. So it'd, it'd be a huge benefit to the community. And you know, being from Miami myself, I've seen how developments change a city. It's. I guess it's surprising seeing it happen in Gainesville because it was considered a small town for so long, and I think that that's how a lot of the residents still feel, that it is a small town or it was a small town, and they're kind of shocked by all the changes. But uh, for the most part, the city, I know the city encourages all of this growth. Um, It's definitely, it creates more jobs. It's good for the economy, but to what cost?
0: Eliza, thank you for your reporting. Thank you. You can read Eliza's full report today at WUFT.org. Same goes for our next look at a neighborhood issue, this one from reporter R.J. Sonbeek, who this week wrote a story about a controversy just north of the University of Florida campus. R.J., what neighborhood exactly uh, did you spend some time in this fall?
4: University Park, um, it's a pretty big area. It stretches from about um, 20th Street uh, to 13th Street and then goes from almost directly behind University all the way back to 16th. So it's an area right behind campus where a lot of students tend to live because of the convenience.
0: So basically just north of Midtown, which obviously is a pretty popular area for, for students to go and hang out. And, yeah, exactly. You know, and so forth. Um, what do you see when you walk around there? I know you spend some time actually walking in the streets looking for people to talk to. What it, what it, what's it like?
4: There actually seems to be like um, a direct split between um, families and students, uh, especially like when you keep going further north that's where the more single family homes come in and then there's an elementary school and you'll see like the the parents walking with their kids for the students or picking up their kids that are the students there and then you'll see the University of Florida students actually crossing the same path because they go they go north
0: and then the parents go like south and the
4: the, the elementary school meets right in the middle.
0: Toward J.J. Finley, which yeah. uh, one of the people you talked to said is a, is a pretty good school, and so obviously it's a popular area for families. Um, talk to me about the person who told you about the school and some of the issues that they're facing.
4: The, the whole effort is being led by the University um, Neighborhood Association President, Robert Mounts. Um, he took over as president two years ago, and ever since he was elected, he's been fighting this issue. Um it's it's been important to him because he actually uh, it's not it didn't make the story, but he lives in the oldest house in the neighborhood and he recently got it um, designated as like a historical landmark. So the area is really uh, special to him and and he he kept using the word culture that he wants to build like a and maintain a culture in the neighborhood.
0: and he's a, a former, Attorney, right? A lawyer by trade?
4: Yeah, so he's a retired attorney, and uh, when, when they dispute with the city, he definitely uses his legal expertise to interpret the code in his, the way he sees it.
3: The, the problem is, is that the standard in the past has been, especially for rentals, that if three unrelated persons were in a home, then that was sufficient to meet the requirements of the landlord uh, ordinance. And uh, that's changed. And so... Census change changed to protect single-family neighborhoods, and with provisions in there that, in very difficult cases, it can even be declared a public nuisance.
0: So let's get into that dispute. What exactly did he try to challenge and get changed? The city of Gainesville
4: has an ordinance um, about single-family homes, and uh, it, in the code, it says that um, a person is allowed to live with up to two unrelated people and where mounts in the neighborhood association disagrees with is they say that instead of one person qualifying as a family they interpret the code saying one person plus plus a related person whether it's through marriage or blood has to live together in addition to the two people which they think disqualifies students unless there's two related students living together and so
0: therefore they have tried to challenge that aspect because there are a lot of students that that he's observed and then you talked to another person it was a, a tucker real he saw some drunk people passed out in his yard one day
4: yeah yeah he said that uh one night uh he, he had to get into go he went he went into his front yard and saw somebody passed out near his bushes at, at about 4.30 in the morning and i don't think that's definitely what he wasn't expecting when he moved back uh, there
0: and so that too has spurred him to try to get some of this changed right
4: yeah there's there's been um the board has 18 members, and they're all residents that live there, and they've all just become involved, but was some issue happening with them.
0: What is the city's response and perspective, and what has changed within local city government?
4: The code was updated over the summer to put a more strict definition on the word family. What the, um, the association succeeded in was adding uh, what constitutes a family member. But where the city disagrees is the very beginning of the code says one or more natural persons. So they still maintain the position that one person constitutes a family. So if it's one person occupying the home and then two unrelated people as is allowed, that's, that's perfectly fine within the code. So one student qualifies as his own family and then two roommates who enters the code. So
0: as long as they don't have more than three people they're fine. Wow. Where does it seem like this is headed? Uh, Where are mounts and reals happy with the current solution, or what's next?
4: They are definitely not happy with the new solution. They want uh, Chris Cooper, the city code enforcer, to um, interpret the code as the way they see it. Uh, They've told me that Chris Cooper has come to their uh, neighborhood association meetings, and uh, and Cooper told me that they've had productive conversations. But it seems like they're still almost at a stalemate and uh, until one side budges. It's not going to really go anywhere.
0: In the meantime, more people might pass out in certain yards. Yeah, that's going happen for increase. sure. RJ, thank you so much for your reporting. I appreciate it.
4: No problem. Thank you for having me.
0: Our Florida Voices series returns this week with a celebration of more than 18 million veterans across the nation. In Newberry, WUFT's Giselle Garcia spoke with Matthew Burke about his time in service.
5: Before serving at the national level, Matthew Burke was working as a firefighter and as an emergency medical technician. Coming from a line of military men, Burke joined the U.S. Air Force in the year 2000. The former airman recalls his first day at boot camp.
2: Yeah, it was definitely a shock. Uh, I came strapped with with military boots, uh, a tight white t-shirt. I was ready to rock and roll, and I got singled out by the TI because I was basically I was the only one there that was prepared to serve.
5: Eventually Burke was deployed to Afghanistan to prepare for the 10 year anniversary of 9-11. Burke talks about the event in which a soldier of his fell behind.
2: We did a roll call and we had a guy missing uh, and we were we had to make a decision to go after him and while we were under fire, it was me and another guy who, who decided to go after him. And we went looking for him. And as I was running through the series of cement bunkers while bombs were going off all around, I, I clipped the top of a bunker on my, on my, on my Kevlar helmet and it compressed my C-spine, knocked me on my, knocked me on the ground.
5: The injury to Burke's C-spine in 2011 did not stop him from continuing on forward. But two years later, Burke was experiencing post-traumatic stress.
2: I didn't realize it until one day I I was traveling to work and I got this overwhelming feeling that I was imprisoned. I just felt like I was trapped. And my leadership failed to recognize the signs of post-traumatic stress that I was portraying.
5: Burke's post-traumatic stress disorder led him to retire in 2013. After leaving the force... Burke went on to join the Military Paralympic Team for Adaptive Sports.
2: They taught me how to uh, focus on what I can do and not what I can't do. They helped me realize that I still had potential, that I wasn't completely broken, that the part of me that was broken was just the part that uh, had boots on, that I still had value.
5: At the Games, Burke won a gold and silver medal for swimming. But after him and his family struggled to make ends meet, even becoming homeless for a time. Berg talks about the struggles veterans face when trying to rejoin society.
2: You know, I would think that a vet's bio would speak for itself. You get know, done 13 years in service, you employed four times, you've been in combat for nearly three years, you know, and uh, your leadership skills, everything should speak for itself based on your bio. But you have these civilian organizations who said, we need you to prove yourself. What are, you, are you serious? You want me to prove myself? I'm sorry. I thought I already did that.
1: With the
5: help of local organizations, Burke and his family were able to get back on their feet. Drawing inspiration from his own experiences, Burke started up a nonprofit organization of his own.
2: I launched this program called Tink and Incorporated. It's a Christian adventure network designed to honor, revive, and grow military and first responder families through outdoor recreation education and rehabilitation. Um, we do all kinds of different outdoor adventures, whether it's skydiving or deep sea fishing, scuba diving, whatever the case is. If it's, if it's got something to do with adrenaline in the outdoors, we're there.
5: Burke now dedicates his time to Ten Can and finishing up his Ph.D. in public policy administration.
0: Giselle also found a woman who we had hoped to include in our series on Vietnam veterans earlier this fall. Her name is Victoria Van Buren, and today, she lives in Gainesville.
5: Victoria Van Buren joined the United States Air Force in 1970 during the height of the Vietnam War. She left for boot camp just 10 days after her high school graduation. At the time, there was only about 10,000 women in the entire Army, Van Buren being one of them.
3: When I went in basic training, the emphasis was on, for instance, personal grooming making sure that you always looked good. You know, they taught people how to put on makeup and things of that nature. Oh yes, it was very, very sexist back then. It really was.
5: Van Baron says that although the Air Force gave women more work
3: options, women were still very limited. I was assigned to a maintenance organization, worked in an aircraft hangar. Women were not allowed to wear pants. So here I am in an aircraft hangar in high heels and a skirt yes like i said very sexist but the institutionalized
5: sexism did not stop van buren after seven years in active duty she went straight into the air force reserves and retired in 1991. one of van buren's greatest achievements was managing the logistics for all governors attending president reagan's funeral
3: every governor had a military escort they were picked up at the airport they were taken down to the rotunda if they wanted to see him before the actual funeral. They were all brought in to our command center before the funeral and fed breakfast and then taken downtown by bus, going through several different law enforcement areas of responsibility and not once did they stop. They were taken straight downtown in case of terrorism, for instance. Van Buren was awarded the
5: Civilian Patriot Award for her service during the president's funeral. During her government service,
3: Van Buren was assigned to work in the Pentagon. It was when I first got into military service, working in a maintenance squadron, going over some of these military regulations as they pertain to maintenance. One day I remember saying, some of these things just don't make sense. One of these days, I'm gonna be somewhere where I can fix this. And sure enough, when I got assigned to the Pentagon, I was in charge of maintenance policy. I got to see it come true.
5: As a senior civilian, Van Buren's last assignment was as the deputy director of all logistics for the Army and National Guard.
3: When everything kicked off in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, we would have staff meeting with the general all the time, who was in charge of all of the National Guard, and he would say things to me like, Vicki, if I have any soldiers or airmen killed because they don't have the right body armor, I'm going to hold you personally accountable. Now you tell me whether that was stressful. Van Buren explained that if she wanted
5: to be promoted, she had to be able to move around. She says that she has made many sacrifices in her personal life in order to further her career as a woman in the military.
3: I've seen things come a long way for women. And in an interview I had recently, I told them that women can do anything that they're capable of doing. You just have to go after it, but you don't have to lose your female identity.
5: After retiring, Van Buren moved to Gainesville in 2005 along with her late husband, Edward Van Buren. Currently, Van Buren is on the board of directors of Career Source Florida, representing all veterans within Alachua and Bradford County. Giselle Garcia, WUFT News.
0: Thanks for joining us this week for The Point. If you haven't already, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and find our newsletter at wuft.org slash the point. Have a great weekend and we'll see you next Friday.